So do you like watching movies? Are you a movie person? Like watching movies, like paying attention to movies. Now, what if when you were watching a movie, as you were watching the movie, you could suddenly change the scenes in the movie just with your thoughts? Hmm? Pretty wild, right? You're watching the movie. You can change the scenes in the movie just by what you think. Sounds a little out there, right? Well, according to Rachel Metz of the MIT Technology Review, somebody has done that. Richard Ramchurn is a graduate student at the University of Nottingham in England. And what Richard has done is he's created some films that you can control with your mind. How in the world does that happen? Well, what you do is you put this headset on, and the headset tracks electrical activity in your brain. And so basically what happens is, is your brain is active. It sends these messages, and the messages from your brain can change the scene, can change the music, can change the speed of the music while you are watching the movie. It's kind of wild. And it would change every single time you watch it, too. One of his movies is about 27 minutes long. But in the 27 minutes, there is twice, three times actually, more footage in the movie because there's got to be plenty of content there for your mind to keep changing all of those scenes. This is what Ramchurn said. He says he estimates that for that one movie, there are about 101 trillion different versions of the movie you can see. (laughs) That is a lot of versions. Now, if this technology ever makes it to your house, Just a word of advice. Don't ever let anyone under the age of six wear the headset if you're watching the movie Frozen, okay? Because the scenes will not change. It will be one loop over and over and over again of Elsa singing Let It Go, okay? That's all you'll see for hours and hours. Ramchurn says this, the movie becomes part of the system of your mind. It's a wild thought. You're, you're watching a movie, and the scenes are changing based on what's happening in your mind. The movie almost becomes the system of your mind. So, question, what is the system of your mind? How do you think? How do you make decisions? How do you determine what you like? How do you develop your personal preferences? How do you think about people? How do you treat people? In a sense, there's this picture here that that your life, the system of your mind, is kind of the movie of your life that you're showing to the world. So the system of your mind is kind of managing the scenes that the world sees of your movie. So what kind of movie are we all seeing in each other's lives? And has the most important scene of the movie of your life happened yet? Has the most important scene that could ever happen in your life, has it happened yet? The scene that's not just the system of your mind, but it's the scene that's the system of your heart and really the system of your soul. That's an important scene. So has that scene happened? And, and what is that scene? Well, let's see if we can find out. Listen to Luke 15, beginning with verse 4. 
Jesus was talking to a large crowd of people one day, and this is what he said. What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, and he says to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. So Jesus tells a a story, a parable about a shepherd and a lost sheep. And just like all of us, everybody in that crowd could make a connection with this story even if they didn't own any sheep. And what's that connection? If you own something valuable and you lose it, you will go look for it. That's the whole picture here. But Jesus is not just telling a, a random story. He's telling a story with a purpose. In this crowd of people, there were some highly religious folks. And in this crowd of people, there were some highly sinful folks, some highly immoral folks. And so this story is designed to help the highly religious people see that they were being moral snobs and that they were not thinking or acting like someone who's supposed to be a part of the kingdom of God. And then this story from Jesus, it's also designed so that the highly immoral people will know they do not have to continue to be depraved strays, but that they can be saved and they can be rescued and they can be loved and honored guests in the kingdom of God. So it's not just a story. There's a story with a point. And how do we know that's what the story is designed to do? Listen to how Jesus wraps the story up in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. One sinner. All of heaven erupts in ecstatic joy over one sinner. Just, Just one. Listen, feel the weight of that. If you're a Christian, if you are truly a follower of Jesus Christ, all of heaven erupted with ecstatic joy over you when you were saved. What's that look like? I, I, I don't know. But, but, but let's kind of have some fun for a second. Let's, let's see if we can kind of paint a picture of this, okay? So on the night that he was arrested... When the soldiers came and Peter tried to put up a fight, this is what Jesus said to Peter. Matthew 26, 53. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Twelve legions of angels. All right, how many angels is that? Well, in Roman military figures, a legion was maybe four to six thousand soldiers. Now, could a legion in heavenly math be a different number? Yeah, maybe. But I'm, I'm thinking it would make sense for Jesus to use a word to Peter that, that he would understand. So let's just, let's just go with 6,000, okay? So if we're using military terminologies, 6,000 and a legion. And Jesus says that there was 12 legions at his disposal. So that's 72,000 angels. That's a lot of angels. All right, 
how powerful are 72,000 angels to deal with the, the soldiers that came to arrest Jesus? Well, I came across something really interesting in my reading this week, and it's about Isaiah 37, verse 36. And in that passage, there's one angel of the Lord that strikes down 185,000 soldiers in one night. So, I, I just, we're just going to play with this, right? This is not gospel truth, just something interesting that I read, okay? So let's just do these numbers. So if we just take that math, that means that if one angel could strike down 185,000, that means that 6,000 angels, so one legion, they would be able to strike down 1,110,000,000 men. Yeah, one legion. All right, well, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, don't you think I would have 12 legions that could help me at any given moment? All right, let's play the math out. So, so 12 legions, so we've got 72,000 angels maybe. 12 legions of angels could strike down 13,320,000,000 men. 13 billion in a, whew, in a swoop. Just to give you some perspective, the population of the world right now is about 7.6 billion. So, so we have this picture. We don't know the actual number of angels that exist. We just don't, at least in human terms. We can't measure that out and number them. But let's just use these numbers and, again, try to feel the weight of what Jesus is saying about one repentant sinner creating this much joy. So, there was a fat, pudgy, acne-faced kid walking down Pine Avenue in Garden City, South Carolina years ago. He was a rising sixth grader, uh, always at church, family was plugged into the church, but, but on this particular day, walking along that road, he was overwhelmed with his sin. He was asking God to save him. And on that afternoon, God quickened his heart and saved him. So if we're using this, this kind of fun math here, that means that, that maybe if we take the, the words of the parable from Jesus, that, that maybe 72,000 angels that have the ability to, to strike down 13 billion soldiers in a swoop, they didn't swoop down, they stopped. And they said, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Dow Welsh just got saved. Put your name, your story in that math. Just feel the weight of this. That heaven rejoices over one repentant sinner. With ecstatic Joy, heaven rejoices. So what's ecstatic joy? Well, maybe the closest thing we can get to is like, you know, like the, the national anthem at a NASCAR race or a football game or a baseball game, something like that. You know, a sporting event is kind of the closest thing we can get to, the, to this much kind of unified praise because there's just a number of people that are there. But one sporting event really sticks out, at least in my mind. If you've ever watched professional soccer, I'm telling you, the, there's something that, especially the European teams, there's, there's something that they do. They, they sing. 
I mean, they sing loud, and they sing all together. Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I've been to a lot of sporting events in my life, and every now and then at a football game or a baseball game, you, the crowd might get really behind the national anthem. But my experience has been over 46 years that a lot of times I'm the only one singing around my immediate little group, you know. I think people are, are kind of scared if they don't have a, a good singing voice. Maybe they're not supposed to sing loud, or maybe they just sing real soft. But soccer fans don't care about their singing voice in Dali. I mean, because they just let it rip. I mean, the whole match, all of them, like the whole stadium, like upwards of thirty to 90,000 people. And they sing lots of songs, the whole soccer match, and they sing it really loud, and they sing all the verses, and they do it over and over and over again. It's fun to experience just listening to it on TV. I imagine experiencing it in person is, is pretty impressive. But, but that's just like a gazillion times small version of what we have in heaven rejoicing over a repentant sinner. And, and you know, they're not singing to anything but soccer or maybe rugby. One pastor in, in Wales said this, 50,000 Welshmen will sing a great hymn in a rugby match, but not to God. They will sing it again on the buses going home if Wales won, but not to God. So this amazing singing, this amazing song being lift up, this loud song of unity, but not to God. But in heaven, all of heaven sings to God. All of heaven rejoices in His glory and His majesty and His beauty when one sinner repents. Just one. And what triggers their joy? Was again, what, what does Jesus say? There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner that what? That repents. So all of heaven is triggered to ecstatic joy over one sinner repenting. I don't know, that kind of makes it sound like repenting must be a pretty big deal. So what is repentance? Well, the Bible describes repentance. The word used throughout the Scriptures is one of changing your mind. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, to repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. So how do you change your mind about sin? How do you change your mind about Jesus? How do you change your mind about all the great things of God? Well, you, you can't, <laughs> at least not on your own. What does that mean? This is what Paul wrote the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We've, we've said this before, you know, dead people don't open Christmas presents, you know, because they're dead. Dead people don't talk because, because they're dead. You know, the, these are common things. But spiritually dead is, is not far off from that. See, a spiritually dead person can't repent because they're spiritually dead. So something has to happen first. Well, what has to happen first? Well, someone who's spiritually dead has to be the opposite of spiritually dead. Well, what's the opposite of spiritually dead? Well, the opposite of spiritually dead is spiritually alive. So how does somebody become spiritually alive? Well, I know, but I don't know. I mean, I know because all of the Bible tells us kind of how, and then God moved Paul to strategically write down some specific words about the how 
but I, I don't know. So I know, but I don't know because it's impossible to really explain. In fact, it's the wonder of all wonders. There's not enough brain activity in the world to go through an electrical headset to change the scene of your life on your own to bring repentance, to bring a spiritual life where there was spiritual death. I don't know how it happens, but it does happen and it can happen. How? Well, if you're spiritually dead, that means the only way it can happen is outside of yourself. Can't happen inside of yourself, has to happen outside of yourself. So, so what does that look like? Well, Paul tells us, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. But before I was lost and before I was blind, I once was dead, but now I'm alive. This is the the math of the Bible. This is the math of God's book. Now, theologically, uh, there are many people that will debate the math. <laughs> it's, uh, it's fuzzy math. And, and it may seem fuzzy to our human finite minds, but I promise you, math is not fuzzy in heaven, and math is not fuzzy in hell. The, the math that God gives is, is very clear. By grace you have been saved. By grace. So how does that grace work? Paul tells us, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. No one, nobody may boast. Not me, not you, not Esther or or Mary or Matthew, Mark, Luke, John or Peter or Paul, not Billy Graham, not one of the founding members of your home church, not your sweet godly grandmother. No one gets to boast. If anyone is saved, if anyone's a believer, if anyone's a Christian, the only thing they get to say is, I have been saved by grace. I've been saved by grace. I haven't been saved by my sinner's prayer. I haven't been saved by my baptism. I haven't been saved by my church membership. I haven't been saved because I'm a good moral person in the community. I'm only saved by grace, only by grace. And that grace, according to the Scriptures, is first and most and utmost and only and always a gift from God. Now, someone might say, hang on, preacher, you you skipped over those two words there. Let's look at them again. Verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. Okay, we don't want to miss them. So let's let's bring repentance back in now. Someone has said that, that repentance and faith are like opposite sides of the same coin, okay? So you got one spiritual coin, one side faith, one side repentance. And if you're spiritually dead, you don't have any money from heaven, all right? So you ain't going to have that coin in your pocket. You aren't going to have the, the coin of faith and repentance in your pocket. So if you don't have that coin and you can't earn that coin, and you can't trade out for that coin, and you can't inherit that coin, 
then how can you get the coin? The only way you can get the coin is, is if it's given to you. So we often want to push against it, and we often may feel uncomfortable about it, but at the end of the day, the math of the Bible is really, really, really clear. Repentance and faith are a gift from God. They're a gift from God. And this heavenly coin of of faith and repentance is not designed for the piggy bank. No, actually, we're supposed to take our faith and repentance, and we're supposed to use it. We're supposed to spend it. It's supposed to be part of our life. In fact, if there is no faith and repentance being spent in your life, it is very possible you were never given the coin. Because faith and repentance are designed to be used. That's the, the nature of what faith is. So how would you know? Well, you'd know because the most important scene of your movie, if, if, we were, if we were to all watch a movie of your life at your funeral, the most important scene of the movie would be whether or not you're saved, whether or not you know Jesus, whether or not you've been joined together with him, whether or not you've been rescued and received his salvation. That's the most important scene of the movie. And salvation requires faith and repentance. I've thought a lot about this parable this week, and, and in thinking through it, my mind was just kind of ruffling through this sheep. And so I, I just kind of wrote down kind of a progressive picture of what's happening in the parable. Okay, now this is, this is not gospel truth. This is just kind of a, a progressive thought through this parable. But it has a lot of application to our own lives. kind of goes like this. The sheep is lost. The sheep cannot find itself. The sheep cannot defend itself. The sheep cannot save itself. The shepherd pursues the sheep. The shepherd finds the sheep. The shepherd calls the sheep. The sheep hears the shepherd. The sheep is is captivated by his call. He's come looking for me. The sheep stops. The sheep repents. The sheep quits wandering. The sheep is saved. The sheep is loved. The sheep is satisfied. The sheep still sins, but the sheep keeps repenting. See, that's the difference. Repentance is not a one and done. Repentance is a a one and and then you keep on going. True repentance keeps repenting. Why? Why does repentance keep repenting? This is what Paul said to the church at Rome. Romans 2 verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Not knowing, ignoring that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? See, true repentance is always reminding you the shepherd didn't leave me. He didn't stay on the porch drinking lemonade and say, ah, it's just one sheep, no big deal. No, he left and he came after me. He pursued me. He chased after me until he found me. Just feel the weight of that. The kindness of God 
The kindness of God leads you to repentance. If you are a Christian, it is because of the kindness of God. That's why. It's not because you're good or nice or had nice parents or nice grandparents or a good preacher. It's because of the kindness of God. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. And that kindness, it it does something to us. It causes that first repentance to keep repenting. So we, we just keep repenting because we keep getting kindness. Listen to Spurgeon's definition again. Oh, I lost mine. That's all right. I'll just say it. To repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. Okay? To repent is to change your mind about sin and Christ and all the great things of God. I said, how do you change your mind about sin? Well, you have to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How do you change your mind about Jesus? How do you go from going, ah, nice historical teacher, to my desperately needed Savior? How do you go to changing your mind that way? Well, you have to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How do you go about changing your mind about all the great things of God? The only way it's going to happen is if you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Yes, we are saved through faith, and that faith leads us to repentance, and we keep repenting, and we keep repenting because we keep experiencing the kindness of God. We don't just say, oh, yeah, I repented a long time ago, and I'm good now. Repentance becomes who we are. So what's this like in real life? Kelly Needham is a wife and and mom, a violinist. And this is what she wrote. Growing up as a church kid, I didn't see repentance as a good thing. Like flu medication, it was commendable to take when you were sick, but it was better to stay well. Avoiding sin was better than needing to repent. Goody two-shoes that I was, this was great news. You see, I was pretty good at obedience and following the rule book. But sometime during those church-going years, I got a glimpse of God in His Word. His character, His beauty, His holiness, rule-following lost its luster as knowing God became the driving force in my life. But knowing Him came with a painful price, exposure. The closer I drew to Him, the more layers of makeup were removed from my heart. The more clearly I saw His beauty, the more evident it was I had none, and this devastated me. For years, I thought I was a pretty good kid, but I'd been decorating the interior of my heart with a flashlight. From what I could see, it looked fine, but the bright light of God's presence revealed the heart I'd worked so hard to beautify was covered in black mold. So what do you do? What do you do when you see the mold? Here's what you do. You feel the weight of what God has accomplished in Jesus on your behalf. You feel the weight that God never stops offering this to you. And what is He offering? He's offering kindness. 
It's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's, it's His kindness. Kelly goes on. This is the battle I fight every day. Ah. Sorry, I got my things right. Uh, That's okay. Follow along. This is the battle I fight every day. Will I cling to myself or to my Savior? Will I recognize Christ as most reliable or will I prefer my own abilities? Will I turn from wallowing in my brokenness to rejoicing in His righteousness if I'm not actively, persistently, and daily clinging to God in repentance? I'm clinging to my own strength. And then she says this, I've tasted the goodness of God and I can't go back. It's good. I've tasted the goodness of God and I can't go back. The profound pleasure of knowing Him through His Word and prayer is irresistible. And then she says this, therefore, repentance is the only acceptable posture for me because it's through repentance alone I can truly know God. All the great things are found in knowing God. And all the great things are found in the posture of repentance. So on behalf of your spiritual chiropractor this morning, how's your posture? How's your posture? Are you standing up and standing in repentance? Are you enjoying the kindness of God to the point that you keep saying, God, I need you to change my mind about that more. For me, the people who had the biggest impact in my life when I was that rising sixth grader who became a Christian, the people in my life between sixth grade and seventh grade that had the biggest impact on me were all senior adults. Sixth grade to seventh grade. It was the senior adults around my life. They had the biggest impact on my life. Because the senior adults around my life, Annie Geldhart, Sylvester Thompson, two of the biggest, they were humble people who loved Jesus and served others. They cried when they began to talk about the gospel. They were strong leaders with great humility. But what they showed to me is that from the time they were 20 to the time they were 80, they were different Christians. And as a sixth grader, I would watch Sylvester Thompson weep when he began to talk about the cross, and I would think, what's wrong with that old man? That really hurt. But you know what I found? Boy, I found in Sylvester Thompson a man who loved Jesus. A man who was always downloading the kindness of God. And even sharing stories of repentance from his life even to others. Why? Because Sylvester knew that all of heaven rejoiced when he got saved. And he never got over it. And he taught me to never get over it. Let me just share one more just quick thought to, to help us toward repentance. John Piper says this. 
Oh, there's my quote from earlier. God has a universe to run and galaxies to uphold and atomic particles to manage and governments to rule in his providence. I just love that sentence. I'm going to repeat it. God has a universe to run and galaxies to uphold and atomic particles to manage and governments to rule in his providence. And he says this, but there's not much in the Bible that says all heaven rejoices over orbits of the stars or the rise of kings. It's true that God takes pleasure in all that he does, but Jesus is clearly referring to something special in these parables. When one sinner repents, there is a special joy in heaven. God cares for individuals one at a time. I want you to know there's no more powerful picture of the gospel than that God cares for you individually. Yes, Jesus died for the world. But please understand that you are part of the world, and God cares for you individually. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you know why we repent? We repent because we've been found. We repent because we've been saved. We repent because we've been loved. And all of the great things of God, they're they're all connected to repentance. Because all of the great things of God are connected to repentance in that when we repent, we know Him more. We know Him more. So let us be a people who are daily having our minds changed. Daily enjoying the kindness of the Lord, daily repenting so that we can enjoy all the great things. And all the great things are in knowing God.